You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to The Buzz, brought to you by the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and boy, oh boy, uh, do we have a lot of <laughs> follow-up oh today on episode 151. Um, and as always, our episodes are full of all kinds of native fact, uh, native plant facts and tidbits and yes. current events, all revolving around ecology and, and stuff. But uh, no, we got a lot of fun stuff to talk about before we get in all that. Yes. And uh, and that's our little bit of follow-up. And uh, which some of it is just stuff we forgot to talk about that, before. That's true. <laughs> that's that's true. But I'm excited about the what there's a couple things like that you added that I, added, I don't yeah. know what they are, but I'm yes. excited yeah, about yeah, the yeah. first thing. So we're a little behind the we this would have happened 2 weeks ago, but I forgot <laughs> to say on our last buzz. But uh, we're a little bit behind the the curve here as far as podcasts go and playing with uh, AI and, yes. and in my instance, uh, chat GPT. Which and, uh, I have now been obsessed with yeah. ever since you. <laughs> it you is a, a way more fun than I was expecting. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and like many people said, a little creepy. Yes. But I figured, well, we'll have our own little spin. I don't need to just ask it. And uh, have it try and convince me to leave my wife and and <laughs> <laughs> that and all this other stuff like it has done with other reporters. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask it about native plant stuff. So I was asking it why native plants are so great and all this and that. It was actually giving really good answers, like almost better and more concise than I could give. Look, uh, I shouldn't say almost better. It was better uh, than I could give. And I'll, I, I know the one example you showed me, it's like what could I plant in – what native plant could I plant instead of this invasive? Yes, yeah. And it was giving like a whole list with some really great yeah. advice. I was like, oh, not, I hadn't thought yeah, about that Yeah, not just one. like the list of plants. It was like this is why you would choose this instead, and this yeah. is why you would choose this instead, and these are the kind of conditions it wants. Really, really um, – I, I'm worried about our jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know because if you ask Chat GPT who we are, you and I are both professors at – at well oh, yeah. University. I, I own a and I own a nursery in in Wisconsin, and uh, Fran is I'll, on the I'll, board of multiple I'll, I'll, organizations. I'm, it says that I found it, and I'm on the board of the Pinelands Preservation Alliance, <laughs> yeah. and that I'm a a professor at Rowan University. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I was like, oh, okay. It's, it's not perfect. It's no. not quite right about everything, but there was uh, knowing a lot about native plants and invasive plants. The information was giving there was. Oh, pretty good spot on good, i, I yeah. didn't find many inaccuracies if any inaccuracies and that kind of stuff but we also want to have a little fun with it yes and um and one of the things i did is well i wonder if it can write me a song <laughs> so i asked <laughs> it to write me a song about native plants uh and friend you're not a musician you i like, am not a, a musician i love music, music yes and uh i am also not a musician and um Although I did play the mellophone and marching band back in did you? two years of high school. I played saxophone. Yeah. Not and, in marching um, band, but but so but that was again decades ago yes. now. Uh so what we really want out of this, I'm gonna read some of the lyrics that it came up with. We know there's a lot of creative people who listen to this, and I would love to them for them to take the lyrics to this little ditty that Chat GPT came up with 
and turn it into a song. Well, I want that. I want yeah. that really bad. Now, here's the thing. What do where do we we're going to put this out there. Where do we do with the song once we get submissions? We got to choose a winner, but then what are we going cuz I, I really like our theme music. Yeah. Maybe rooted discussions or yeah. maybe special episodes like when special we do episode. or I was just going to say we could have it be the the, the outro. outro song. That's very it's like, true. It's like this is how it ends. We could it's, play the whole song as the outro. Yeah. Yeah. Which which may be good. Or, or we can just play it in the middle of episodes randomly <laughs> at our whim, which is also equally fun. Depends um, on how long it is. If someone puts yeah. like a five-minute guitar solo there was in there. A, 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 again, I listen to a lot of hunting podcasts. There was a hunting podcast I listened to that came up with a whole seasonal album of uh, of like Christmas songs that they twisted to make about hunting. And then they would just randomly play in the, in the episodes. And they're pretty creative and good. But – I know our listeners are creative. So I'm going to read just the, the first verse and the chorus. Yes. And then we're going to take the rest of the, the lyrics. We're going to post them in want, our Facebook group. Yeah, I, I would say that would be an easy post. I don't want to put it in the show notes. I want yeah. to get people to the Facebook group, make sure they're yeah. they're checking it out yeah. there. So. But we even I know there's a, a studio recording artist that listens to this. So Yes, there is. Uh, I think they're a couple episodes behind, though. So they might. Okay. They might, we might be waiting a little while. But I'm okay with that. The song starts. And it goes, in fields and meadows, on hills and dales, grows a bounty of beautiful beauty that never fails. Native plants so diverse and so rare, the treasures of our land beyond compare. And the chorus is, oh, native plants, how you grace the land. In diversity, we take a stand to protect and preserve for generations to come. Your beauty and importance is second to none. I like it. Yeah. I really like it. It actually wrote uh, four verses, a chorus, and an outro verse. Really? I don't know how their bridge writing is in chat GPT. I didn't yeah, notice yeah. one there, but okay. uh, but there's a little bit of freedom of expression to whoever uh, uh, takes this challenge on. I agree, and and we're calling it the native plant anthem, right? That, that was a, that was what Chat GPT called it, called and it I was oh, I can't you think gotta, of anything better no, than that. The native plant anthem. So, okay, so um, I, we want all the musicians out there check the. Uh, I couldn't remember the name of our podcast, right? the, the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast yep. uh, Facebook group, and look for the lyrics, and we want submissions. Yeah. We want submissions. This yeah. is going to be a big – do yeah. we have something for the winner other than um, – That's a to-be-determined. We're going to make it something nice. Okay. Uh, I got to go through our box of, of swag that we have. Okay. And uh, and find – Figure out we, what well, we And we have our T-shirts that we can always send a T-shirt to. We do. So we'll – it's going to be something – this is a big ask, so I want to make sure Maybe. they're – Wildly rewarded for this. Maybe we need to put together a native plant anthem T-shirt with some of the lyrics. With the lyrics on it, yeah, that could be it. That would be good. What if this takes off and they become like a big time Spotify artist, or they have their own SoundCloud, and that's I, where it goes. And everyone goes there to listen. Listens, or yeah, tens of thousands of listens. That would be pretty. That would be something else. That would be sweet. But uh, and then I wasn't done playing with Chat, chat GPT. <laughs> I was. Uh, I was saying, oh, I'll write me a native plant movie. Okay, now write me a, a sonnet in the style of William Shakespeare. Write me another movie, but make it like a Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> and then, oh, what about M. Night Shyamalan? Make me an M. Night Shyamalan native plant movie. And then uh, then I th- really got to thinking, and we have one listener in particular who's a big video game fan uh, and guest who's been on, big video game fan, and has actually talked about how Pokemon is a great way to get people to interact Yes. With with nature and think about nature, so I asked ChatGPT to make me a native plant themed Pokemon episode. Oh, and it did. And I'm just reading a little snippet because it was very long. Okay, all right. And um, and it was as you wander through this verdant land, you'll find many plant based Pokemon at hand. The uh, Budu Bellossum, uh, 
Santina's going to be bad. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't pronounce that. Uh, so full of grace with her sweet fragrance and colorful face. The Bulbasaur and Oddish so green and strong, their leaves and petals protect them from wrong. The Chikorita and Sunkern so bright and bold, their energy and vitality never grow old. Your task is to catch them all, then help them thrive by planting them in gardens and helping them survive. You'll nurture them with love and care and watch them grow with beauty so rare. So Yeah. Yeah. That, and that was, again, uh-huh. it was very long. <laughs> but. <laughs> Santino, if you want to write a song about that, yeah. you, you can do that. Yeah. We'll accept that. <laughs> well, no, I had a lot of fun with it. And, um, yeah, it was, I, I don't know That's what else awesome. to say. It was just, it was fun plugging stuff in there. And even just doing, like, I, what should I plant instead of this plant? Tell me why invasive plants are bad. And it was, like, five points, very succinct. Like, just, it was, it was very clear good. on what it was saying. So, um, maybe I'll post some of the other fun stuff and, and, and factual stuff. Uh, did on there as well but i would like that i yeah. think our listeners would like that and now well. i know there's bard and uh which is google's based and then um what's the other isn't one? microsoft Snapchat using chat beat, chat beat, i think GBT. microsoft like took that and now it's like they're calling it bing they, yeah. they might have bought the technology and then they're calling it bing and it's apparently even better than this but it was in beta and i couldn't get access okay. to it so All right, gotcha. so yeah if you guys are playing with this too and you find something really funny or, or really cool or just really good uh, send it all our way in that, that Facebook group as well. Yeah, I would like that. Yeah. I really enjoyed putting our names in there and the podcast to see what it said about us. Yeah. yeah. So although I did ask it what native plant podcast should we listen to, and it didn't. It didn't list ours. It didn't list yeah. ours. I've asked it why they, people should listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet, and it gave also better reasons than I came up with <laughs> on, uh, on why people should. But but we have some other follow-up stuff yes. to, to go over too. Um, one being, I just got back from the National Native Seed Conference. You did, and that was in uh, in Alexandria, Virginia. And um, I have mixed feelings about it. As a native plant producer, it's uh, it's not for native plant producers, and it can feel a little frustrating at times in some of these sessions because they can be very academic. And very, um, you have a lot of government agencies that are involved or, or, or nonprofits, nonprofits that are involved. And I, some of the, the ass that you're hearing from a, the business side of things just it aren't very practical. Um, the one thing that was really evident to me was there's just still, a, and we've talked about this on the podcast yeah. numerous times, there's just a major, major disconnect from the people who want native plants or, or, or driving some of the research behind native plants. And then the native plant producers, what they're what they're supposed yeah. to do. Uh, the overall trend, I think, how it was marketed is there's like this national shortage of of native plant seed, and uh, there was another well, ten plus producers that I talked to there, and like we keep hearing there's shortages, there's all this demand, but we have warehouses or, and coolers full of seed. So are we that wrong with what we're growing that we have? One guy in Pacific, uh, on the Pacific Coast, um, one guy in California, was saying he has 1.7 million pounds of seed unsold in his warehouse right now. Wow. He sold a bunch yeah. too, but yeah. 1.7 million pounds. And uh, my brother actually sat on this presentation. He gives this presentation, and then the next guy up is also from California saying, oh, there's a huge seed shortage in California, and we can't find seed anywhere. <laughs> so it's like, how are they that far apart that they're in the, no, California is a diverse state. I don't yeah. know where they were in the state, yeah. but how are they that far apart on communications that you have someone who has 1.7 millions of pounds of seed to sell? And it might not be the right stuff. Yeah. 
and then you have someone else who's saying they cannot find seed anywhere. Uh, and there was some market research on the East Coast, and I was just like, it was. I know there was, and I was. I had some questions about the survey they did because uh, I was just looking at it and saying well, the 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 insights you're getting from your survey do not align with the insights from our customer base. And we have uh, anywhere from 700 to 1,000 unique customers every year. And what they're asking us for does not align with what this the the market research that was done was saying either. And so it's it's frustrating hearing this. It's, I'm looking at it and saying, Oh, are we really doing that bad of a job of communicating our message and, and making people, letting people know we exist or is there something else going on? Well, you know, I think sometimes it depends on who has the microphone because mm-hmm. we may have someone that, you know, being I, – I don't do the seed sales, but I do all the plant sales. So there may be someone that that contacts us every year and says I need Comptonia and Pawpaw, mm-hmm. which are two of our biggest sellers and, and not very – always very easy to grow or, or yeah. to have seed to grow. And every year when they call, I'm sold out. Mm-hmm. And we we may have grown a bunch, but yeah. they they sold really quickly, and they're like, "There's a shortage of plant material. I can never get what I want because yeah. every time I call and ask about these two things, they're always mm-hmm. sold out." Yeah, which to them it's it's a shortage. To us, hey, maybe we sold a thousand of each. <laughs> you, yeah. you know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Which it, it was a good year, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe we could have sold another two hundred of each if we had them or three hundred yep. of each. But yep. we don't consider that a shortage. Yeah, um, and and they're. These a lot of this research is saying it's not just seeds that are short; it's plants yeah, that are short yeah. too, and some of it's eco region specific. It's, it's particular areas of the country, like uh, that are. I would think the Mid Atlantic is probably doing pretty well yeah. overall. Um, Iowa is another uh, another state in the Upper Midwest tends yeah. to do pretty well with native plant availability, um, but you get into New England. Uh, yeah. I, I can see that there being potential shortages there, and. Um, other like the desert southwest, I can see shortages there. It's uh, but on from our perspective, when we're having these conversations with our customer base and potential customers, if if we were hearing there's demand for this kind of stuff, we we've and sent crews out. Yeah, yeah, we've sent crews out to go get seed from different areas. Yeah. We've contracted with people to supply us with seed from different areas, so we could have specifically. New England ecotype stuff, or uh, Virginia was another place. We have Virginia ecotype, uh, ecotype plants. We would get seed from Virginia, actually send people down to collect the seed yeah. from Virginia, bring it back to New Jersey, grow it out, and then sell it back down to Chesapeake Bay, southern Chesapeake Bay, Virginia, northern North Carolina. Something we did and, and still do to some extent. When the demand's there, we do. We have the room to yeah. expand. Like We want to grow more. We aren't seeing it on our end. And the other producers I talked to all felt the same way. They weren't – in fact, one guy I, I, in his presentation was saying, we're calling it demand, but from our end, it seems more like desire. You desire this, but it's not coming through to us. We're hearing, oh, people want this stuff, but when it's actually cash is hitting the table, it's not what they want. I, I I agree, and you know I was going to say sometimes I feel like being intimate with our customer base. I think ideally most of our customers would like to care about local ecotype. Practicality wise, though, they don't care because I don't see it specified in jobs. I don't say, hey, you know this. 
with the exception of like New York City parks is good about this and parts of Maryland is good as – hey, the, the plants had to have been grown from seed collected within a 50-mile yep. radius of this job site, a 100-mile mm-hmm. radius of this job site. Sometimes it's too too narrow. It's the, the seed had to have been collected from the site, but you don't have access to that site, so yep. you can't collect the seed. But I've had this conversation with with – government agencies where they're like we can't specify that the plants come from you and i'm like you don't have to you just have to specify the provenance mm-hmm. like yeah. you don't have to say buy yeah. it from pineland say but you want the plants to come from seed within a 50 mile radius and mm-hmm. there's not too many people that are going to be able to do that if, if yeah. that's what you really desire but i guarantee you there's 50 times more seed coming into new jersey of incorrect provenance mm-hmm. than than what's available yeah. like here that you could do it's sometimes price matters sometimes it's just i don't know yeah and i i don't recall if i brought this up when i went to planorama at brooklyn botanical gardens uh, a couple months ago i know we've talked about it internally with the the nursery but i don't know if i talked about it on the podcast but i was surprised how many people affiliated with new york city parks or some of these nonprofits in new york city land trust that kind of stuff that had no idea we existed and like i like i mentioned that's a failure on us, us, specifically yeah. me, yeah. that I haven't gotten our name out there enough that people that were within 50 miles of us didn't even and were searching for native plants, didn't even know we were there. Um, so, it, yeah, it was frustrating hearing a, so much of that. But it was also uh, there's some com- camaraderie between the producers saying, well, I, I we're all in the same boat. And, um, and and another producer had a, a really good saying because, like, again, you, another part that's frustrating is you're hearing – some really specific ass from some people, and it's like oh, they they don't understand the logistics behind it, or uh, they don't feel like you, they just don't understand you and and what's being at, what they're asking you as a producer to do. And uh, and one of my friends had mentioned uh, to my brother actually, well, you got to remember that this isn't representing all environmentalists. This is just the ones that are here. You have plenty mm-hmm. of environmentalists that they get it and they yeah. they really are passionate and they know it's. Hey, we might want this, but we will settle for for just a little bit less yeah. um, because that's what we the best we can do right now. So, no, and, there's some and, really cool and, and intriguing and, efforts coming out. No, it's, it's but sometimes it's communication too, yeah. and who you're communicating yeah. with. There, there's 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 entities in this sphere that spend more money on marketing mm-hmm. than they do growing actual plants. Yeah, you know, yeah. and to get to get the word out and or to make it seem they have a big voice but a very little footprint. I yeah. think sometimes, and I think sometimes it's, and, and, and I don't mean this disparagingly. Sometimes it's it's easy to be a little more idealistic when you don't have to be profitable. Yes, I, no, I definitely agree yeah. with that. You know, because it's as a for profit business, you have a responsibility. And I, I actually said something along those lines in the in the presentation I gave. I had like a I had a like ten minute snippet of time that I got to present, and it was a little. I had a little brief topic and then took questions for two or three minutes. But one of the things I'd, I'd mentioned was, hey, we have 40 employees, give or take, that work for our nursery. That means there's 40 families that rely on us to, to for, not even just rely on us, rely on me to make good decisions and steer us in the right direction. And um, I can only make so many bad decisions until we don't have any money. <laughs> We're out of business. And um, I shouldn't laugh as I say that because it is a very serious yeah. topic. And it's like it's one of those things. It's time of year. It's early in the spring. Plants are starting to move out, but not at a fast enough rate. Cash flow is a little bit light coming in. It's just how the nursery industry works. 
Um, so yeah, I'm on on this ride down to this conference, on the phone with our banker, making sure we're going to have enough money in in our bank account to make payroll that week. Uh, well, this is Monday, and then for Wednesday's yeah. payroll, yeah, I got to make sure we're going to have enough money in the account so we can make payroll, and all these people don't have to worry about their paycheck and their benefits and, and making sure they have the money in their bank accounts to put food on their table. That's our responsibility as a business. There's only so many risks and chances I can take in the, the name of ecology that to, it's a balance. We want to yeah. do the right thing on both ends, but yeah. sometimes you have to do the best you can do. Yeah. Uh, but you, you sacrifice a little off either end. And the, you know, for all the major players in the industry, the industry depends on us too. Cause mm-hmm. without that, yeah. there would be a collapse oh, yeah. and, and it's, it, it's very difficult in a lot of respects because some, you know, in a lot of cases, we get asked to help and show people how to do these things. Mm-hmm. Well, your family spent 35 years developing of their own money mm-hmm. and their own time and effort and making those mistakes and yeah. having those losses to figure out how to do some of these things. Mm-hmm. And you can't just, in good faith, just give that away. It's worth something. Yes. Like not yeah. saying that you have to ask money for it, it's, but you can't just yeah. give it away for the sake of creating competition. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because that was actually a, a question that got asked of our panel. Uh, maybe it was a different presentation. I forget. But it was someone was saying, like, this is for the, the good of the planet. So you, you should be – it was with our panel because okay. there's um, – we talked about contracting and uh, – which is a, an excellent way to partner with established native plant or yeah. native plant producers um, as a, a nonprofit or a federal agency or, or government agency, they can say, hey, we're going to pay you X amount of dollars for you to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And, um, the, but there was some push as a requirement of some of these contracts. One of the questions that was asked um, was a requirement of some of the contracts that you're, as the, the producer – you should be required to provide the the mechanisms you use to create this. Like that was part of it for the public good. Yeah. And um, I didn't. I had the same similar thought, but someone else on the panel answered like, "But that comes at a cost. Yeah. Like it costs money to develop these processes. Yeah. And to just give them away so anyone can replicate them is is tricky. It, it's a hard thing to do. I I understand how it." can be a public good. Yeah. We want more native plants out on the landscape from an ecological purpose, but we also need to, in our perspective, we yeah. also need to run a business. Um, so it's hard. I, we're, I learned from John Seymour from Roundstone yeah. Seeds. He's taught me so much. And Earned Seeds, too. They've taught me so much about uh, native seed production and the whole market. And when I've had questions, they are pretty free-flowing with information. And I try and do the same thing. Um, but... It, as some of the – I'm talking about it there. Some of the reason they're so free-flowing with information is they know how hard it is. I almost said an F yeah. word there. They know how hard it is, and they know that not a lot of people can actually do it. Um, yes. And, you know, both financially and just from perseverance. So, And I have to say too, it's – you're not taking business away from someone if they don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And no one that I'm, I can think of is charging an unfair price for the – Wholesale wise and the wholesale yeah. restoration nursery, I can't think of anyone that's that they're going. Oh, that price is just way out of line. You're mm-hmm. like for developing something, someone could easily say, "Well, I developed it. I'm going to charge five times more." Mm-hmm. 
No one's yeah. doing that. It's all for a fair price. Yeah. So it just seems weird for me to hear people say, I know you can grow. Let's I'm just gonna take our biggest seller, Spartina. Mm-hmm. We we grow a million a year. You know, we could grow ten million a year. Mm-hmm. And we could do it and offer it at a reasonable price because we've already figured out how to do it. It just seems silly to say, Well, other people need to do it and take some of that business. You shouldn't have it all. Yes. I, I don't yeah. understand the, the reasoning for that when you know everyone's happy with the product. It's a reliable product. It's a reliable service. And it's, and it's at a price, good price. Yeah. Why? Why? Why yeah. should I tell you how to do it so that you can take my business mm-hmm. when we spent 35 years to figure out how to do it? Yeah. yeah. And I, I think some of the argument there is because it it – when people look at it from the outside, it's like, oh, you're giving other people the opportunity to create more jobs. And instead of looking at it, well, we're also creating, creating more, jobs. More, more jobs if we were to grow $10 million instead of $1 million. So, yeah, no, it's a, there's a, like I said, it was a really fascinating conference. I'm really glad I went. I, I feel better than I did when I went six years ago. Yeah. Six years ago, I was I was angry leaving this conference. Yeah. yeah. Um, Because it was uh, there an obvious disconnect, and it was... Um, a group of producers came to the table for a session on uh, private public partnerships yeah. and felt demonized by the public sector yeah. <laughs> about stuff. Yeah. And this time it wasn't that we didn't feel demonized as much. Um, at some points we did, but it was, and we, we went in, like I was a bunch of times I would hear things that would get me a little upset. I'm like, I hey, just, this doesn't make any sense. I could feel myself turning red. And I'm like, I need to think about this with well, an open mind. And and, and here's yeah. the thing. I can understand this yeah. standpoint. If you want something that's maybe hard to grow or small quantities, and it's easy for us to say we can't grow it. It's not easy. It's truthful. Like we yeah. can't grow it or it's not profitable enough for us to grow it. Yeah. Or we can't – it's not enough to add. Like we do these things because people want them, but sometimes mm-hmm. you have to say no. That I can understand, well, this is necessary. We all want it, and none of you will do it because you don't have to do it. You know, mm-hmm. But we're taking responsibility that we also have a responsibility to everyone that works here. Like when you, when you talk about what's good for the planet, like, yeah, like why wouldn't you tell someone how to do it because it's good for the planet? Well, having us here is good for the planet. I can't remember the number I had mentioned like when we were talking to someone like I've been here for – 16 years, we've supplied 30 million plants towards restoration. Oh, it has in, to be more than that. More than even. that? Like, yeah. in the year, that's good for the planet. You figure from plugs yeah. alone, you're looking at at least 2 million a year. Yeah. For over, uh, so you have three or 30 million plugs compounded that's another. Ball. Yeah, yeah, that's lowballing it. Yeah, Let, that's, and then 50. you have another, I don't even know, hundreds of thousands of, of containers. I don't even know it with tublings. It's, I, I do have an approximation. Yeah, you're. It's it's probably closer to 50, 50, 50 million, million? All right, maybe so sixty million over a sixteen year span. You know what? That's that's good for the earth. Yeah, that's good for the earth. Yeah. There would be a gaping hole had should that not exist. Yeah. Now, one of the things, and I was actually going to bring this up in the listener shout out, but I'll bring it up now. Is um, oh, I'll give. I won't say the person's name now. I'll All say right. it later, but. During the questions of my panel discussion, uh, someone someone uh, pumped me up a little bit because they 
asked what what nurseries and what seed producers were doing to promote native plants and then uh, directly asked, and Tom, why are you so good with the microphone? <laughs> so, <laughs> so which was, was nice. And she actually introduced herself during the break and um, and said she was a listener. And it's awesome. actually wrote, written in before. Okay. But uh, so I got to plug the podcast. So I'm wondering how many people <laughs> – This we don't usually rant about industry stuff. Uh, but no, no, we it was, don't. It was but interesting. It's... But I know a bunch of people, as soon as they heard the name of the podcast, went on their, their phones and subscribed. So – Thank you guys, because I know we'll get a nice bump from that conference for joining us. We like to have discussions like this and give different perspectives. And I, what I, another ask is if you're at that conference and this is your first time listening or you're a long time listener and you're at that conference, join that Facebook group, the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group that we have for podcast discussions and share your perspective. How did you feel coming away from this? Yeah. Um, Because I know a lot of people, there's things that I was energized about. A lot of people were really energized by this. It's a, a, big brainstorm that's going on here um but yeah from the production standpoint it's like oh i feel like i'm doing something really good and i'm hearing i'm not doing good enough it's we're not angry it's it's confusing yes i guess is that that there can be such a varied message or yeah how can we or perception how can we have such a different perception of just demand in the marketplace and we do that by by volunteering You know, for for certain groups or, or certain committees and things like that, like we we try to help as much as we can, and we're not mm. we're not misers yep. when it comes to yeah. it. Where yeah. I think if if someone were to come in and have had a tour here, we're pretty free flowing on the amount of information oh, yeah. that we provide. Yep. You know, we can't do it for you, but we we provide a lot of information, so it's not like we're you know hiding everything behind a curtain. Yeah. But oh, so, well. a couple other things, little takeaways from the conference is. Uh, is well, I brought my wife and son down, and they went to the. They did some stuff around DC. They went to the National Zoo, and um, <laughs> my wife was taking all these pictures um, of the National Zoo and of my son wearing a plant native plants T shirt in front of a wall of bamboo, <laughs> like a <laughs> bunch of bamboo. And then again, uh, my wife wearing his plant native plants, or excuse me, my son wearing his plant native plants T shirt, standing in front of a mural of a honeybee on a dandelion. <laughs> And, and she wow. said the other side of the wall was actually the dandelion in seed and the seed like drifting away. And I'm like, yeah, promoting the spread of this uh, uh, quasi-invasive species. <laughs> have we have we ever done zoos, detrimental, oh. zoos as a uh, we have, take yeah, it we or leave? Okay, zoos. I thought so. Um, right. And another big takeaway uh, from the travel to and from this trip was it is pear season. It is it, it is it in is. full swing along uh, the ninety five corridor. It is it is insane. I, I have <laughs> freaking pears. There are you oh know. My God, I I've noticed it on my drive to and from work. I'm on uh, Route yeah. two ninety five for a good at least half an hour yeah. each way um, every day, and it's I've noticed more. There's noticeably more this year than last year. Oh yeah, it's. And uh, and if you don't know what we're talking about, because not everyone does, and, yeah. and not everyone's from the Mid Atlantic, but um, we talk about calorie pear, uh, and then a subspecies of that or a variety of that is uh, Bradford pear. Is Bradford pear, and uh, it's a plant that was introduced because it was supposed to be like the next great street tree. Uh, ended up being a pretty crappy street tree, if I'm remembering correctly. And then because uh, it gets fire blight, it's yeah. messy. It gets a lot of disease. It break. It's brittle wood, so it breaks yeah. or bad crotches. And then uh, probably the worst component is it was sterile, um, but it actually would, well, it would get pollinated by other pears and then 
could produce a, a, a fruit that was could spread by seed. Yeah. And the birds, while it was low nutrition, didn't have a lot of other stuff to eat, would eat the berries or eat the fruit. with Not like a big pear like you're thinking of. It's like a little tiny thing. And then go fly to the hedgerow along all these roadways or in the woods and oh, out come the seeds the other end. And, and now they're all over the place. And, uh, and they're bright white flowers. Um, and you'll see places that are just mobbed with them. And uh, even my wife was like, when we were driving down, she's like, it is just so sad seeing this and knowing like just 10 years ago, I thought this was like so beautiful and what a great sign of spring. And now I know what it is. It's like, it's really disheartening to see how have we done this and and how many people driving along this road right now are like I was 10 years ago saying, oh, look at all these beautiful flowering trees. Now, if I remember correctly, pears are fly pollinated, not bee. I I don't think Uh, very many native bees at all care for for it. It's, uh, I think, some non-native and the fruit, I think only some native birds it's, it's typically non-native. It's until they're like I really right, like yeah. like soft. Like at the mm-hmm. end, some of the native birds will will yeah. eat it. So it's not really providing no to that. Yeah, food people way. people yeah they think oh well birds eat it so it must be helpful. But even I think I've seen reports or I have seen reports from a nutrition standpoint and they're really not nutritious. Yeah, uh, similar to Japanese barberry and some other stuff that's spread the same way. It doesn't have a lot of nutrition for the our native birds, um, but they don't have a lot of other things to eat out there. Yeah. And now you're, because this is what they are eating and they're spreading, they're actually having less and less to eat. Um, but it's not their fault. It's, no. it's our it's fault for, yeah. for putting them out there. <laughs> Very so, true. Uh, and that was an, another point. Just going back to our last thing is uh, one of the, the things we hear all the time from our customers is I would probably say the number one hurdle they have for project success is invasive species yeah. control. Yeah, I agree. And, um, and my brother walking out of a session that he heard, he was frustrated again, say it, and he's like, we're putting all this energy into this, and it's like, but we're driving by all these these pear trees. Like, the, the native plants aren't even, it's not going to work unless we get these invasives under control. Why aren't we putting as much energy into invasive control as we are yeah. or saying, oh, we don't have enough native plant supply? Um, and I, it's, I think that's a valid question. I, I know, and we're putting a lot of, of effort into invasive, uh, invasive control, but you drive down, like I said, uh, some of these interstates now, like this time of year, it's pretty noticeable. and it's like, oh yeah, we need to do so much more in, in terms of invasives. Yeah. Um, the, we're just starting to turn the faucet off in the United States where there's not going to be more of this stuff coming out in the, in the landscape. There's just, but there's so much already in these these natural. I'm doing air quotes areas, uh, these natural areas that um, it doesn't. I don't. It doesn't matter that the faucet's off. Uh, the the basement's yeah. already flooded. <laughs> we need to <laughs> we need to get up the the wet dry vac and yeah. and sump pump <laughs> now some this water out. Some of the banning so, of of yeah. like uh, I know PA Delaware yeah. banned it. New Jersey. It's it's not official uh, it yet. Should be soon. Soon. Yeah. yeah. So I mean that helps. That's oh, a yeah. start. If if you can't yep. yeah, sell it, you can't the buy it. You can't plant it. Yeah. There's not going to be anything new coming out. Then it's just dealing um, with it. It's, now it's we got to clean up the water. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and one last thing I'll bring up in in the like I said, we had a whole long list to follow up today. Is um, we got a message on Instagram, and I saw a couple other people promoting this, but uh, from Jared the Nature Guy, 
who I look him up. He actually wrote like a nature-based children's book. Okay. But he came out with a free card game. So we're oh. going to put that in the show notes okay. and put it in the Perfect. Facebook group too. And um, and it looks pretty cool because it's customizable. You can make your own cards as well. It kind of has oh, like a nice. template. So, But it had uh, some stuff contributed by Heather Holm. And like it's oh, wow. like, oh, it'll have like uh, uh, pictures of plants and some of them non-native or invasive i should say and then some of them are native and it's like nice. good or bad and i haven't really dove headfirst into it to see how it is okay but it, it looked pretty interesting so we'll, right, we, awesome. i want to make I sure wait. people have it out there and um and uh and have access to it so uh it's it's literally it's just in a, a google drive folder <laughs> so all right i'm writing it's a note so i remember to put it in the show notes. thank you because i'm not the one who does the show notes yeah so. i i'm i gotta do it well, um, yeah. Awesome. A lot of follow-up. Wow. We actually spent like half of the episode on follow-up. Yeah, I, well, I figured we would. So. <laughs> All right. You want you want to do some That's Hot? Yeah. Yeah, All let's right. do it. That's hot. You want to go first or you want me to go first? Uh, well, mine's going to be a little long again, so All why right. don't you go first? All right. Uh, all right. No problem. So mine is – I got mine from a different source this year. Mm-hmm. This year, I saw this. I was like, you know, what a way to highlight something. So this is – this plant is one of the nominees for the Native Plant Society of New Jersey's Plant of the Year um, for uh, – I guess it was the New Jersey Native Plant Society 2023 Rare mm-hmm. Plant yeah. of the Year, um, which is Claytonia virginica variety Hammondia. Hammondia? It is – Hammondia. Yeah, I, I'd say okay. Hammondia. Right. Uh, and uh, it – it's blooming now. It's uh, blooming March through April, and this text was by Bobby J. Herbs on mm-hmm. the uh, Native Plant Society website. So Claytonia virginica spring beauty can be found along roadsides and woodland edges in New Jersey. This beautiful uh, – with uh, the beautiful flowers with pink guides for early and small pollinators with pink stamens open on a sunny day and remain closed at night or under cloud cover. There are two forms of spring beauty that feature yellow. Found in Pennsylvania and Maryland is pale yellow form variety from Lutea, the rarest form and classified as endangered in New Jersey by the USDA NRCS is Claytonia virginica variety Hammondia. Uh, this is one of the nominees for the Native Plant Society of New Jersey's Plant of the Year. Uh, Claytonia virginica variety Hammondia or Hammond Spring Beauty is found in exceptionally wet and acidic areas on the Kittatinny Mountain of Sussex County. This is the single location for this species, although some speculate it may also exist in eastern Pennsylvania. Hammond Spring Beauty is distinguished by bright yellow petals, orange nectar guides, and white anthers. Smooth grass-like leaves come in pairs and occur halfway up the stem. This is a low plant offering flowers on 4 to 16-inch stem. Spring ephemeral, the plant disappears after the seed capsules ripen in early summer. Discovered by... Emily K. Hammond, more than five decades ago, the naturalist noticed something odd about the field of flowers. They reminded her of a common spring beauty yet were yellow in color. At the time, Hammond reported her findings to the Brooklyn Botanical Garden where it was categorized as another spring beauty. Years later, David Snyder, former New Jersey State botanist, investigated further and was astonished by every bloom being yellow with no no other flower color variations in the field. It was then that the Nature Conservancy took note and purchased the 77-acre tract in the 1990s. This tract is the only place on earth Hammond Spring Beauty exists, quoted in an article for uh, for NorthJersey.com by James O'Neill on May 12, 2017. Scott Sherwood, the land steward for several preserves owned by the Nature Conservancy, stated this meadow is a rare inland acidic seep. 
The groundwater comes up out of the cracks in the bedrock and runs along the top of the bedrock. The water is pretty acidic with a pH of 5.5 or so. So I just thought that was something that you're not going to find in a, a garden center. Uh, you're you're yeah. not going to buy it somewhere, but it's it's being preserved, and now is the time to see it. So if yeah. you want to go oh, see yeah. it, go see it. Yeah, no, that's awesome, and that it's only in well, one place on Earth. So um, that's the, pretty fascinating. What is it, the Kittatinny, Kittatinny Mountain Range, which I believe is like the water gap up in that area. Yeah. So it's probably like if it's if it's native in PA, it's it's probably the Delaware River. I think divides that mm-hmm. right there. So. Yeah, but um, and then my plant is uh, I always like to do this where it's like, why are you choosing this? This <laughs> isn't a big plant now. Um, I chose uh, Spartina alterniflora. Uh, I still am not calling it Sparabolus alterniflorus yet, and yes. it's, it's smooth cord grass. Yes, and uh, I took a little snippet from wildflower.org, and then uh, but I have another reason why I'm choosing this plant. It's not okay. just like like usual. All right. Um, the uh, the dominant grass, it, it well, this is the dominant grass in coastal plains of eastern North America. Salt marsh cord grass grows three to eight feet tall in moist, sandy coastal regions that are brackish to very salty. Uh, its leaves are green with silvery white undersides. Flowers are four to 12-inch spikes appearing late summer through fall with seeds ripening soon after. Roots are deep and fibrous with rhizominous colonization. Uh, again, that's from wildflower.org, who is a great resource if you're looking this stuff up. But you guys probably already know that. Um, there's two reasons I'm bringing this up. First is because I got a good chuckle, and I sent this to Fran. Yeah. There's I've I've mentioned before I when I'm going to sleep at night I put on um, quasi boring YouTube videos to kind of like lull me to sleep. And, <laughs> oh, this, uh, this was pretty and funny. I f- saw one on Spartana Altonaflora, and it was by um, a nursery in the the Midwest or I'm Midwest South, Southeast. I don't know what you South, I guess it's South, right on the border yeah. there, and um, and. I was like, I don't know. This is a salt marsh plant. It's a coastal plant. It grows. Yeah. It has a very wide, state-wise, it's, it covers a lot of states. Yeah. Um, actually, it's considered invasive in the Pacific Northwest because of where it's not native. Um, but you can find it from Canada all the way down to Texas, to Texas into Mexico, really. But it's only going to follow the coast. Yeah. You're in the tidal zone. It, it's a really narrow band that it grows in. And um, so I'm like, why is this company in or nursery in middle america growing this plant i don't i don't quite get that and then as i watched the video i was like well i'll watch the video to see and as i watched the video i'm like the pictures they're using aren't even <laughs> of the plant <laughs> the facts were close maybe they used chat gpt to make the facts. yeah um there were some there were the the words on the screen weren't bad no. but they were showing like pictures that were clearly not this plant yeah. i don't know if they even had more than two pictures. No, they, it kept rotating. This, but yeah. I didn't notice until you told me because I was on a, a webinar and yeah. I was holding the phone up to my ear oh, listening yeah, yeah. to it and I wasn't watching it. And then you're like, did you notice that the pictures aren't right? Yeah. I was like, oh, no. Let yeah. me go back and watch. Yeah, I was pretty sure at one point I was looking at a, a picture of Phragmites come across the screen talking about uh, so invasive plant while you're talking about. Uh, and, and that being said, this nursery in particular has a reputation for yes. For this kind of thing, so uh, or not being the most uh, uh, reputable reputable resource, but um, no, it was just it, I laughed a little bit, but I was also a little concerned and angry because this is the kind of information that's out there, yeah. and how many, how many people are going to watch the, it? I think it was only like forty, okay, but um, but still, it's like. 
40 people watched this and how many of them didn't know? And now they're looking at these pictures and saying, and looking at where it's coming from and saying, oh, I could plant this near me. Um, and now they're, it, it's not, uh, I, I don't like that kind of stuff. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I left the comment and gave it a thumbs down. <laughs> but, but, but the other reason I'm choosing this plant, and this is probably the even longer part of this, is, like I said, we were down in Washington, D.C., and uh, you probably remember, if you've been listening for a while, a year, I think it was a year ago, maybe two, I actually did uh, a this or that article on the Tidal Basin just by the National Mall. And uh, right now it's cherry blossom season yeah. in D.C., uh, and you have all these really beautiful cherry trees that are in full bloom. It was peak bloom when we were down there all around the Tidal Basin, so you have uh, the FDR Monument and and the Thomas Jefferson Memorial and uh, the Martin Luther King Memorial is right there. And it's not far from the Washington Monument and the other end of the National Wall with the uh, Lincoln Memorial, all that. And what the article had said is there's, with sea level rise, that tidal basin is beginning to flood uh, at high tide. Okay. Um, and actually, a little aside. I remember that. The yeah. tidal basin is a man-made structure. And it was actually a way that they could control with they could use the tide to control the water and selectively release the water back in the Potomac River. It was just okay. brackish at that point. Um, selectively release at such a velocity it would clear out the the silt from the waterway oh, okay. and keep it navigable without having to dredge it, which I didn't know until today, yeah. which was really fascinating. But Anyway, with sea level rise, it's actually flooding going up over these seawalls that make up the, the basin and then uh, causing a lot of sediment uh, and erosion on the banks and actually uh, uncovering the roots of a lot of these cherry trees, which are not salt tolerant, yeah. and this is brackish water, um, so it's killing cherry trees in this process. Um, because all that salt is, is being yeah. – not just washing over the roots, but it's being contained by it's that being, soil. Yeah, it's being yeah. left there as the, as the water recedes. A lot of the salt stays, and then yeah. as it, the water evaporates, it's yeah. uh, it really makes it salty. Um, so there was a noticeable amount of dead or dying cherry trees, um, and then an added byproduct of this is because you have flooded portions of the walkway. People are now going off path, walking through the cherry trees compacting the soil, making a hard pan so the water's not going to penetrate, which is also killing the, <laughs> the cherry trees. And um, and it's just, as and, uh, I was proud of myself because as we're walking around, I'm telling my wife all this, and then we walk past a sign that's saying all this same stuff. Yeah. I'm like, you didn't need that sign. You had me. You had a, <laughs> you had a tour guide. <laughs> and, and, uh, that's awesome. So, uh, but it was just really, I talked about it and, and, some of the solutions um, for what they could do there. But it was really interesting to see it. And it was another one of those those interesting things where I'm here looking at all this stuff from the ecological lens and saying, well, it's not a native plant, but you have erosion issues and salt issues. And all, like you're watching these trees die and you're just thinking, how many other people are noticing this as they're like trying to climb on the limbs and, and shaking the, the branch so the – all the petals fall out so they can get the perfect picture and all this stuff. Like, how, I was just just thinking, like, how many people actually realize that this is happening? Yeah. Even though there's signage there saying it's happening. 
Um, how many people are actually like paying attention and, and realizing one that's not even native plant, but two, all this other stuff is compounding there. And um, but one of the proposals is actually they did they put a call out for a proposal on what to yeah. do there. One of the proposals, a lot of them were to incorporate native plants, but one was actually to turn it into a salt marsh. Oh, um, okay. So that's one of the key components. Yeah. Salt marshes are Spartina altoniflora, yes. and that is why I chose Spartina, Spartina <laughs> altoniflora, so I could tell you about all this flooding in the National Mall that I just saw, and uh, and I have a video I made about it too that'll come out on our native awesome. plant, planet Instagram soon. Looking forward to that. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yep, awesome, very cool. I'm glad you you were able to see that firsthand and take advantage of that moment too to be able to take the video. Yeah, my wife was then taking videos of me to put on influencers in the wild or whatever that, <laughs> that page is called. So no, cool. it, was, it was really interesting. So you want to get into our botany-based current events? Yes, let's do it. So on the last buzz, I had an article about how invasives are outnumbering natives in England and Ireland, and you had an article about a new take on lawns, and we have a winner, and the winner is – I guess I have to <laughs> – you, Tom. Tom yeah, won 14 you. to 7. That's a good win. But there were a lot of a lot of comments. Mm-hmm. A lot of people yeah. were weighing in. A lot of people were very passionate about both. And I like that when they have trouble making a, a choice. So yeah. Oh, yeah. a lot of people saying they wish they could vote for both, but they didn't. Because yep. so. we eliminate that option. <laughs> no, it's a so. competition. So you get to choose uh, if you'd like to go first or second. Grant, I'll well, I was going to say I'll let you go first, but I'm just scrolling ahead here and seeing how long but you this know article what? If is. You notice- I don't know if I can let you do this to the people. There's this a space after every sentence. I don't know if it, Fran, this is – It's is. not that – if you were to condense it, it's probably not that long. I'll, I'll read it fast. I don't know that I'm going to read it all. One, two, three. Four pages? Four, five, five and a half. Five and a half. All right. Five and a half. Uh, yeah, there are some extra spaces, but I don't think there's, there's three there, pages of no, spaces. No, I'll, I'll read quickly. I'll read quickly. So the, right. the name of my article – is once controversial highway program is now a massive success story by Casey uh, Mahaffey, and it uh, was first shown in Columbia Insight, or it's on ColumbiaInsight.org website. When Josh Zalestra saw the video clip of a cougar sauntering through the deep snow at the exit of a wildlife crossing on Washington's Snoqualmie Pass on January 2nd, he rushed it off to a colleague to post on Twitter. And watch the excitement unfold. As a biologist for the Washington State Department of Transportation, it's part of Zilstra's job to look through the thousands of video clips that come to his inbox annually for motion sensor cameras set up at 11 wildlife crossings on a seven-mile stretch of Interstate 90. Last year, there were close to 5,000 crossings, mostly deer, elk, coyote, and a multitude of smaller animals that are snowshoe hair-sized or larger. But so far, the cameras have captured only one cougar using the wildlife cro- crossing on this major east, uh, east-west east highway. It was very exciting to see that. It's not something we normally see, said Zilstra of the cougar crossing. He knows by following the research done in Canada's Na- Banaff National Park, where there are 55 crossings and 50 miles of the Trans-Canada Highway, that it takes some animals years to get used to new wildlife crossings. It appears that cougars living near I-90 are becoming more accustomed to these man-made structures – that when combined with the appropriate fencing, help wildlife travel safely across roads and highways without being hit by a vehicle. When the I-90 Wildlife Carter campaign kicked off in Washington in 2000, the project was controversial because of its high cost and questions about the effectiveness of crossings. The structures alone range from a half a million to $6 million each. But they're now wildly supported 
widely supported as the best way to reduce collisions and prevent unnecessary injuries and deaths to both animals and humans, not to mention the cost of damage to vehicles. A recent Washington State University study found that on average, the crossings prevent one to three wildlife vehicle collisions per mile each year. Uh, to avoid – or sorry, to wildlife advocates – the crossings are also important for connectivity. They allow wild animals to travel from winter to summer ranges or to make their daily trek to and from watering holes and help prevent populations from becoming genetically isolated. Now with, clim- with the climate crisis impacting wildlife habitat, the wildlife crossings are being seen as a vital tool to help wild animals be more resilient to the changes. According to the Center for Biological Diversity, Habitat Loss and Fragmentation – are the primary drivers of the massive extinction expected to come with climate change. Roads and poorly planned development have profoundly negative, uh, negative impacts on biodiversity and ecosystem function, both of which are deteriorating worldwide, the Center for Biological Diversity says. Roadkill numbers demonstrate the need for improved connectivity. For example, traffic is estimated to kill millions if not billions of animals on U.S. roads every year. On February 14th, the Center for Large Landscape Conservation and more than a dozen other organizations went a step further, issuing a statement urging government officials to consider climate change in the design of wildlife crossings. As effective as wildlife crossings can be, their sting – or I'm sorry, their sighting and design too often fail to account for climate impacts. Incorporating these considerations is increasingly important to support climate-driven wildlife movements and range shifts, their statement says. Once they were shown to be effective, some western states quickly embraced the wildlife crossings. According to the Oregon Department of Transportation, Colorado has 69 wildlife crossings. California and Utah each have 50, and Washington and Nevada have close to two dozen each. Oregon is lacking with just six. The Wildlands Network report that Oregon drivers have a 1 in 180 chance of hitting an animal, the highest likelihood among west coast states. This session of uh, Oregon legislature is considering House Bill 2999 which would establish a program to reduce wildlife vehicular collisions, including feasibility studies and plans that may include wildlife crossings and roadway fencing. Uh, Sydney Bowman, ODOT's Wildlife Passage Program leader, says Oregon drivers hit about 6,500 animals every year. The vast majority are deer and elk, but bear and cougars are also struck. Smaller animals aren't generally recorded. ODOT has a development uh, has developed a map to pinpoint the areas where animals are most often struck. The agency has also completed five undercrossings on Highway 97 south of Bend, and wildlife collisions there have dropped by 86 percent. But Bowman says the state hasn't yet determined what projects to do next, partly because of the many complexities. Along with the ex- extensive fencing, each product in- project involves working with landowners on both sides of the roadway and determining whether a more costly overcrossing is needed or undercrossing will do. In addition to animals – People have been utilizing the Highway 97 crossings, which can deter wildlife, yet creating another consideration for future projects. We've learned a lot from the projects we've done, Bowman said. High cost has been the biggest impediment of building more wildlife crossings, but that's changing. Last year, Oregon legislature allocated $7 million in general funds to be invested in wildlife corridor projects. ODOT is hoping much of the allocation can be used as matching funds to get larger grants through a new federal program. The Wildlife Crossing Pilot Program will spend $350 million over the next five years to help fund and design construction wildlife crossings across the country. Uh, all right. How many pages do I have left here? Too many. Two. two I'm, all, I'm only halfway done. <laughs> yeah. So um, let me see. I'm going to just uh, scroll to the bottom a little bit. Let me see here. Uh, 
Meanwhile, I got All my right, computer you got cord All right. stuck in my, All right. my wheel of the chair. No problem. So. so Conservation Northwest has also left efforts to establish safe wildlife crossings along I-90 in Washington, which is now hugely supported by local organizations, government agencies, and private citizens. About half of the project, which envisions 24 to 25 crossings along a 15-mile stretch of the highway, is complete. The next major project is another overcrossing near Easton scheduled for construction in the next couple of years. Zilstra, the WS dot biologist noted that last summer one of his cameras captured a moose traveling from the North Cascade Range to the south. Then in December, a, mu- a moose was documented for the first time at Mount Rainier National Park. It's highly likely the detected moose is the same moose that showed up in Josh's videos using one of the I-90 crossing structures. Uh, let's see. Without crossing structures on an I-90, this historic event may not have happened. Garvey Dardis says connectivity is important for genetic exchange and variability, which is critical to the long-term viability of a species and resilience to changes in the environment. She's excited about WSDOT's plans for new wildlife bridge and three large undercrossings that will reconnect populations of mountain goats that have been isolated from each other because of the highway. Citizens who follow WSDOT's uh, Snoqualmie Pass site are also enthusiastic about the crossings. When the video of the Cougar Crossing was posted, it generated dozens of responses along with several questions about the kinds and numbers of wildlife using the crossing. So I, I, that's something that we've talked about. It's very expensive. Like you, you've talked about it as far as fragmentation mm-hmm. and isolation and what that does to populations, and it decreases the numbers as far as their their ability to, to make oh, yeah. and reproduce. Yeah. Um, it's just nice to say. I don't know if you've seen pictures. When I, I believe there's pictures in the article with the link mm-hmm. when you go to in the show notes that some of these are pretty like impressive. Like you oh, could, yeah. it looks some like you're walking are, through are major a, a overpasses path. Yeah. and you would never know as uh, that other you were other over than, a highway. Other yeah. than the noise of all the cars, yeah, you wouldn't know that you're over a highway. Um, they're like football fields wide in some yeah. some areas. It's they're really really impressive. Um, but the fact that it's reconnecting like the moose at Mount Rainier, yeah. big, oh, yeah. big deal, and we'll see if that mm-hmm. continues. Like yeah. if it's these, these wildlife corridors around our infrastructure are really important, and um, and they can often be as simple as like a little culvert. Yeah, um, I know there's some on the Atlantic City Expressway that like are put in like that, where it's just or... little like underpass, and it's just a small little culvert so the turtles can go back and forth. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 other stuff uses as well, but that was like the main focus was they have uh, some species of turtle that that's part of the migration. So hey, this is a way for them to get through, and they track and uh, yeah, yeah. So that, it was it's pretty interesting the whole concept, and it's we're finding it's more and more important. And there's now legislation at work to create more of this, yeah, which is all across the country, which is is super. Important. And a lot of what I skipped was talking a little bit more about the legislation yep. in, in yep. all these states and the success projects. Um, like what it was – like why it was a failure earlier or thought of is just the initial cost. And it took some time oh, for yeah. the animals yeah. to really take benefit mm-hmm. of it. So, yeah. But now it's nice to see that it was there long enough, maintained long enough after the investment that they're seeing such – good signs that they're willing to to put more money towards it yeah yeah exactly all right what do you have um mine was actually sent to us on instagram we were messaging on instagram by branda lynn and um and i saved it for myself i did not share it with you friend yeah i was gonna say i didn't know anything and it's it's called uh how climate change is thrown off key timing for wildflowers and trees in spring she actually said hey i you guys have probably seen this already but if you hadn't i just want to share it i'm like oh yeah i hadn't seen this and it's pretty fascinating i uh 
being considerate of everyone else's time, I, I, <laughs> I sniffed this down. Uh, thank you. If you if you skipped ahead, here's where you should stop and, and start listening again. Um, <laughs> this is where we need the new chapter yeah, yeah. Uh, function that they just rolled out but, for the podcast. Um, I, I basically took a couple snippets. There's a lot more to the article. I tried to pick out some of the more uh, fun to read parts um, and and definitely picked out all the big words I wasn't going to be able to pr- pronounce, <laughs> right? Uh, no, I wish I did that because I'm seeing a couple already. But like I, we always do, I'm going to read a little bit, give some of my feedback and uh, and thoughts um, from an un- unscientific lens. But uh, starting now, uh, for short, live spring wildflowers such as wooden enemy, uh, and Dutchman's breaches. You didn't Time say the botanical. Everything. I did not. I skipped over. All right, anemone quinquefolia, <laughs> quinquefolia. and dicentra cucularia. Yeah. All right. I'm again. I was for time saving, my friend. <laughs> uh, <laughs> these fleeting plants, known as ephemerals, grow in temperate forests around the world, leafing out and flowering early in the spring before the trees towering above them leaf out. Early to emerge, or emerge too early, and it will still be winter. Emerge too late, and it will still be too shady, or, and it will be too shady under the forest canopy. An essential photosynthesis to happen. Over their evolutionary history, these plants have figured out the best time for their survival, but climate change is altering spring growth conditions, and plant life is changing along with it. There are many examples of plants shifting flowering time in response to warming temperatures, such as cherry blossoms opening earlier and earlier each year. However, one part of the or when one part of the ecosystem shifts, with all the other organisms that depend on it successfully shift too, or will they be out of luck? And if what if interconnected species respond to change at different rates, leading to disruptions in long-standing ecological relationships? Researchers have been asking these types of questions about phenology, uh, which is the timing of biological events related to climate for years, but most studies have focused on plant-animal interactions like pollinators coming out at the wrong time for flowers. Far fewer have analyzed the plant-plant interactions, such as spring ephemerals, that need time to grow before trees leaf out above them and block the sunlight. Our research group investigated, and again, this isn't my research group. Mm-hmm. This is the, I'm reading <laughs> I did not do this research. <laughs> um, Are you sure? Their research group had investigated the mismatch between understory wildflowers and canopy trees around Concord, Massachusetts. Uh, using historical observations recorded by Henry David Thoreau, the author of Walden, his classic about the life in the woods, we found that trees in Concord were more sensitive to spring temperatures than wildflowers were, and that this resulted in an earlier tree leaf out that reduced available sunlight in the understory. This finding was an important first step, but we wanted to know whether these patterns persisted in other temperate forests in North America and across the Northern Hemisphere. Our latest study shows that the answer is yes. We found that as temperature warms, deciduous trees across eastern North America are advancing their leaf out timing faster than native wildflowers are responding. Um, A little aside here, they actually did this research in other areas of the world as well and found that eastern North America was, while all of them were responding in some way, it seemed like Eastern North America was a little bit faster, okay. or a little bit faster. Um, back to the article. Uh, for example, yeah, for example, am I at the right spot, friend? Yeah. Yes. yes um, for example, during cooler spot, uh, cooler springs with 24 hour, 24 hour average March and April temperatures of 41 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, which is five degrees Celsius trees leafed out 13 days after native wildflowers. This gave the flowers almost two weeks of full sunlight on the forest floor. However, during warmer springs with average temperatures of 58 degrees Fahrenheit or 15 degrees Celsius, trees leaved out only 10 days after native wildflowers. This gave the wildflowers about 25% less full sunlight during uh, time during which to photosynthesize. As spring temperatures warm even further with climate change, we can expect wildflowers will have even shorter periods of full sunlight. 
This can mean sizable decrease in flowers, energy supply, and ability to survive, grow, and reproduce. We also observe that trees and wildflowers in the warmer southern parts of their ranges advance their leaf out and flowering times faster, respectively, than those in colder northern locations. In these zones, we found greater timing differences between trees and wildflowers. This means the potential for a phenological mismatch where native wildflowers are more likely to be shaded out by trees is greater in the southeast U.S. than in areas farther north. This was just, like, so fascinating to me because, like the article stated, I'd read a lot of research and, and thought often about the animal plant uh, impacts of this happening. Um, we talk about birds and birds uh, that are migrating. Well, a lot of their migrations have historically been timed up to when these food sources were going to be available or certain resources were going to be available. Um, same thing with hummingbirds and and. Uh, you think about monarch butterflies and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, even stuff like tent caterpillar is like mm-hmm. they're, they're how they, when they uh, become active, tends to line up with bud break. And as things change, all those interactions go on. And then the tent caterpillars are food for so many other things. Yeah. Uh, so now you have things that are moved around and there are things reacting at the same rate. And uh, but yeah, I hadn't thought about plant to plant interactions no, at all. I, that's so. you know, and the first thing I thought about was the brilliant displays of spring ephemerals at Bowman's Hill. And yeah. I'm like, oh, I wonder yeah. how historically that's changed, or I wonder if it is changing, or if they're noticing it. You know, and it's that um, it makes me sad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Actually, oh yeah, it really because that's not really a thing you can just fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, like yeah, how do how do you well? You could daylight. I should should actually fill that in. One of the things that I cut out of here is their recommendations for some of this potentially is you do just that. You thin some of the forest canopy to make sure there's there's more light going to be hitting the forest floor. And now the ephemerals aren't going to always respond um, because they might through through other parts of the year they might want more shade. But um, but you're just with how the sun is moving, they're going to get enough sunlight in different yeah. parts of the day, even though other things, the other trees above them may be leafed out. But, um, yeah, it's the one thing that's really, uh, well, a, a, something interesting to me, I should say, is that it was only a difference of three days. That's what they're finding. But what a big impact that three days makes yeah. when it's only, it's 10 to 13. That's, um, that is pretty amazing. Yeah. It's, it's when only you like, break it down that way. Yeah, it's oh, oh three days. How what could that matter? Um, but when it's like again, it's it's over twenty five percent of the or a little less than twenty five percent of the sunlight that they would be getting otherwise, or they've needed. So yeah, it's um, that's a great article. It was a really cool article. Uh, and this was I forgot to mention was published on um, on PBS uh, on their website. So uh, thank you, Brandolyn, for sending that over. Oh, that was so, wonderful. That yeah, was wonderful. I really appreciate it. So. I, I didn't. I didn't because I didn't get it and now it's competing against me. But <laughs> it's, it's two great articles. Uh, we've been posting them on Monday on the uh, Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. So make sure you check in on Monday and vote because. And of course, the choice is yours. All right. I I went in a I, – I themed listener shout outs for me. I this see week. that, yeah. So um, yeah. why don't we uh, kick into that? Listener, listener, shout out, shout out, shout out. I will let you go first because I want to hear 
the interaction from the seed conference. Yeah, so the first one, and I alluded to this earlier, it was uh, Laura Fisher Walter who who approached me during uh, one of the intermissions in our panel discussion and uh, and said she loved listening to the podcast. And actually, awesome. so she told someone else about the podcast too because then they told me how. Oh, I, and I'm I'm assuming this is the same person because they had a similar story. Okay, but uh, it was Mark Feely from Ernst oh, Seed okay. yeah. was saying, "Oh yeah, I was talking to someone about, and they were saying how they love listening to your podcast in the greenhouse when they're doing stuff in the spring." And then Laura oh. approached me and said, "Oh yeah, I love listening to the podcast when I'm in the greenhouse at the, oh, awesome. the Call, Tall Grass Prairie Center." Um, I love hearing that. So and I think she's. In, I'm pretty sure she's in the Facebook group, is what she said. I thought she'd written in too, but it might have just been through the Facebook group. Because okay. I remember someone from the Tall Grass Prairie Center I do writing too. into us, and I told Laura, and then I never got to follow up with her at the conference. That's a, a place that I would love to have on as an episode yes. too, because they're doing some really cool stuff. Not in our area, in another area of the country, um, but it's super, super important I would uh, love work that. that they're working on. So I would love that. Um, so, Laura, reach out to us or, or send someone to reach out to us so that we can we can coordinate that. Thank and you, then, Laura. Um, then we had uh, – oh, yeah, I get this now. It's uh, EC3PO. Which, yeah. I, yeah, I get it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> At first, I didn't – I was like, I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, they left her a five-star review. And uh, it was very complimentary. And it said uh, that they were loving the show. And basically the headline, which is what I like, is that it was less daunting. That's our model. We don't want to yes. be something that's uh, – we, we can get in the weeds and very technical at times. But we try and make it approachable so that people can listen with no knowledge and, and pick up something and start their journey with native plants. Um, and then uh, the one – this may be the biggest compliment – I've ever got in in my long illustrious podcasting career, and it was from Bog Hobo, which is another fantastic another, yeah. uh, fantastic review name. Um, and they wrote, "Tom and Fran are truly dynamic duo. They talk native plants like the car talk guys used to talk cars." That is and, one of the yeah. best compliments <laughs> that you could say. I I was so that made yeah. me smile from from yeah. ear to ear. So many family road trips growing up. Listen to car talk. Couldn't wait for it to come on. We'd actually kind of almost plan out some of these yeah. trips so we could listen to Car Talk. Um, yeah, so that was that was a, a giant, giant compliment. So that's huge. Yeah. Thank you so much. Some yeah. great, some you know, some great feedback, which I always love hearing. That's awesome. Yeah. So I wanted to yeah, go. Don't, don't garden like Fran. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go in a. <laughs> In You're a, supposed to say it back, Chris. You know, they said, "Don't garden like Tom." It was like, "Yeah, don't don't drive like my brother, and don't drive like, like my, my brother." brother. Yeah, so I was, <laughs> Sorry, it didn't work. I missed my cue. Yeah. Uh, um, I wanted to give shout outs to some of the feedback that we've gotten on a native plant yeah. every day with Tom yeah. and Fran. So, um, we're we're just about to tomorrow. We're recording next week's, which will get us halfway through the season. So we're just about halfway through uh, season two. And we've gotten some five-star reviews, and I wanted to say thank you to, uh, let's see, Danny, uh, which gave us the review. Um, let's see. I'm looking at the wrong one. I'm very happy that this is back for a second season. I love the information that's packed into a short amount of time, and Tom and Fran make me laugh in a good way. Also, this podcast led me to, led me to Native Plants Healthy Planet, which is also great. Uh, to Daniela317. Who said, I love this concept and the native plants are highlighted in short format. They present the information in a fun and entertaining way. I love learning about native plants and different ways to add them to the landscape. I, I have to give a shout out to Christiane, our producer, mm -hmm. who is yeah. keeping us 
on track that we've, we're averaging like 16 minutes an episode, which we and, were not doing season one. Every single episode is yeah. almost the same length. Yeah. Instead and of some being eight and some being 20, it's yeah. dialed we, in. We've been really good. And then to uh, Red Bee Bomb, Susie, upstate New York. I'm glad season two is here. Very entertaining and super educational. I feel like I need to take notes to remember everything. Luckily, I can listen again. Don't know if I have enough uh, space in my yard to plan everything I'd like to. That's a good problem. Yeah. You'll find oh, yeah. space. I'm sure there's a little bit more lawn yeah. you could take out there. Yep. So it's some great feedback on both podcasts, and we appreciate all of it. Thank you to everyone who listens. Mm-hmm. It takes the time to to tell us that they listen. I love. We were at um uh the New Jersey Ag Society gala. Yes, and yeah. Someone came over to to say they were a fan and didn't realize that they went to high school with my oldest son. <laughs> Oh, son really? at first yeah. like they didn't make yeah. the connection at first that was like i was wondering how many chismars and i i did a little research and found out that that darian is your son then we went to high school together. oh no so, way. yeah so yeah. Oh, very cool. i i thought that was very cool so jamie specka thank you for for uh for stopping by and saying uh, yeah i didn't know she listened to this oh, that's I, cool i didn't either so it was yeah. nice talking to her about it and uh it, it was funny because she's like i didn't know this is what you did for a living i'm like i don't think any of my kids yeah. Friends yeah. knew what I did for a did for a yeah. living. So, but but thank you for everyone that reached out. Um, it's not too often we have this, but we have a a question. I want to ask you a bunch of questions, and I want to have them answered immediately. It's a simple question. Um, no, I didn't hear you. What was your question? So I am going to play this question, and Tom, I need you to keep me on track because I may be in line to giving bad advice. I'm curious what your advice would be on this. Right. I've I'll, listened to it, but yeah. I know you haven't yeah. listened to it. So, let me stop right there. I have to turn. <laughs> let's let's try this again. Hi, Tom and Fran. My name is Anna, and I'm calling in from Washington D.C. Our neighborhood is doing a big push this year to increase native plantings and get ourselves on Doug Townley's Hunger National Park map, which we're really excited about. My big question is about soil, which I know you guys have been talking about lately. Uh, I expect a lot of the soil in our neighborhood yards is construction backfill. So my big question is how we should amend that soil to plant native plants. And for container gardeners or people starting seeds in pots, what is the best soil to use? Um, maybe what soil do you guys use at the nursery that we can recommend to folks here? Thanks so much. Do you want to do you want to talk about seeds in pots? I think you may be a little bit more knowledgeable than yeah, me. Um, well, you're definitely more knowledgeable than me on that. Yeah, with what we use at the nursery is basically a, a peat moss based mix, um, and we we make our own. So we add sand, uh, and there's a, like some fertilizer and some other stuff. But we're growing things in a different way than if you were doing this at home and you want you're having a perennial, so you wanted to have like a, a an orange cone flower in a pot. Um, you probably wouldn't want to do it exactly the same way. Uh, one of the, it's going to be hard if you're doing a container production or a con, not production, a container garden. It's going to be hard to get away from peat moss. Um, that's just what everyone tends to use. So, but there is a, um, and I, honestly, I haven't tried this exact product, but I've played around with the paper a little bit. There's a, co- a company called Pit Moss that now has bags of um of their product in garden centers and it's basically like part peat moss and then part uh there's a perlite in there and then part um it's recycled newspaper and cardboard so you have some 
and for whatever when we've tried it with just we've added the paper ourselves to peat moss it there's a little trial and error but when we got it figured out it, it did some really cool stuff with the plant rooting faster and you had like a more vigorous root system and then um and then a, a more consistent quality of plant um but there's a lot of folks that are, are moving to that yeah um so that might be something you want to give a shot or try out. I, when I do stuff in containers, so, I just gra- I basically grab all the spoils that kind of fall yeah. off in the little cracks of our, our conveyor belts and all that. I take that and I plant in that, um, and it works fine. It's kind of like a mishmash of pine bark and peat moss and um, sand, yeah. a couple of the core fibers sometimes. So a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Now, I will say for as far as amending soils for planting on your property, and not everyone's going to agree with me, but personally, I don't amend the soil. Um, mm-hmm. And I know you're saying it's it's construction fill. I It is at my house as well. I, I live in a planned development with the exception of the back area that, that backs up to the natural area. It's all fill because um, I kind of am of the, the thought that once if, – if you add something – or nutrients, once the roots deplete that or move out past that, you're still back to what you had. <laughs> so yeah. um, eventually the plant has to deal with it, whether it's younger or or older. What I typically do is dig a wider hole than necessary to decompact the soil so that the roots have an easier time. And I, I try to focus on plants that thrive in low-nutrient soils depending on what else is there? I mean if, if you go through the community, there's plenty of plants surviving even in the fill. I've had no issues with getting plants established mm-hmm. in, in my property um, knowing that that's what that is like. So that's my recommendation. Um, I would do your own research as well and it never hurts to get a soil test just to see what you're dealing with in case there's something really out of whack. I don't think it costs that much. You may need some help deciphering that soil test mm-hmm. but – it it doesn't. I I think you can get a soil test for. I know in New Jersey, Rutgers is forty five dollars. Yeah, it, it's not not a ton of money to do it. Um, but yeah, I, that would probably be what I would recommend. Number one, yeah, is uh, is know what you're working with, and and you can find folks that can kind of explain it to you as well um, through your your cooperative extension or uh, through like master gardeners groups, those kind of things. They should be able to kind of explain that breakdown, but you do want to know what you're working with, especially if it's construction fill. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would also say I, my usual recommendation is, yeah, you don't need to amend it because like Fran was saying, once it uses up all those nutrients, then it's going to be in normal yeah. soil anyway. So, um, yeah, so that's where I'd probably say yeah. Something very similar. Decompaction yeah. is a big deal. Yeah. You know, so yep. if you can dig that hole wider and, and give it a little bit, yeah. you know, better now area I, to get established. I don't know how true this is, but I'd always, someone had told me a former recommendation was, say you're going to plant a tree. Yeah. You would dig the hole two or three times as, as wide as this yeah. uh, diameter of the tree, and then you would fill it with topsoil. But then... What I again, this is what I heard was what they were finding is the roots from the tree were just staying in the topsoil and they would hit the the na- native soils and then just start to spin around yeah. and it would almost act yeah. like a big pot. Yeah, um, basically because they yeah. it, it was just making it ideal conditions for two to three times as wide, but not 
really helping it establish. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and it, they would find circling roots, things like that. Yeah. It, it used to be – it's really weird how it's changed over the years. When I first started, it used to be two to three times as wide, two to three times as deep, mm-hmm. backfill to grade okay. with amendments, amended mm-hmm. soil. Yeah. And then put the plant in. Now I think the last time I read was you you only dig as deep as uh, grade, mm-hmm. uh, so that the when you put the pot in or the plant in, it's at grade. Yeah. So it's a hard pan underneath, mm-hmm. and then two times as wide. But mm-hmm. I like two to three times as wide yeah. just to yeah yeah to break it up a little bit. But it just they keep changing it. No, but they definitely saw like some of that like hard clay and mm-hmm. then it yeah. was just backfilled with peat moss yep and it hits it and just just circles yeah you yep. know so you got to get those roots strong they you know you you want to build a little struggle <laughs> yeah <laughs> for, yeah. for yeah. them to 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 have a little bit healthier yeah. roots oh, you, yeah, you can't exactly. make it too easy mm-hmm. yep so that doesn't help either but i have a i have a question for you okay for the sake of time. Well, this is going to be my suggestion, what you're about yeah, to say. Yeah, we're at a, an hour, 20 minutes. Yeah. You want to save Grow Read a Book for the next one? I do. All yeah. right. I will tease it All right. and say the book, I did read a book. Again, it's been a long time coming. Because I have a I, feeling when we talk I about this, to it's going to be. Oh, it's a big discussion. Yeah, it's a big discussion. Um, and the book that I will talk about on the next buzz is titled Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, and it's all about. Humans' relationships by with animals. It was by a, a professor Hal Herzog um, from Western North Carolina University. At least he was when he wrote this book. So I'm looking uh, forward I to that. It was one. pretty fascinating. So I'd I'd love to tell you my thoughts about it and hear your thoughts as well. I'm assuming in the next episode we're going to have less follow up and more time. I believe this. so. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but for a topic, we have been going back and trying to follow up on some of the things that we didn't know about to keep mm-hmm. native plant every day. Keep keep it lean and mean. Some mm-hmm. of the things yeah. we don't know, we wanted to bring over to here. So you had asked the Chelsea Chop if it was applicable to everything. I think it was. I forget exactly what I I I use it on a ton of stuff. Um, but, I have my rule of thumb is if it's going to bloom before, well, basically if it's going to bloom before June, I usually don't touch it. Okay. Um, because I tend to do it around like Memorial Day. Yeah. So if or I, yeah, so it's gonna bloom like mid June, and if I see flower buds when I'm about to go do this, I don't, I'll yeah. leave, I don't leave them. But although I have experimented and then cut half of them and to see what would happen, because it will delay flowering a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's been what I've always read was the rule of thumb is you don't cut it with if you see flower buds. So, so all right, so I took information from two separate websites uh, from Fine Gardening. Uh, they mentioned that the Chelsea chop is a method of pruning that limits the size, controls the flowering season, and often decreases the flopping of a number of herbaceous perennials. And from the English garden, what plants can I Chelsea chop? That question was asked. Robust mid to late summer flowering perennials benefit from the Chelsea chop the most. So try it on perennials like Phlox paniculata, Helleniums, Asters, Echinacea, Solidagos, perennial sunflowers like Helianthus, and also Achillea. So I thought that was some great yep. advice on which plants can benefit from that. And that is uh, a lot of the plants in my garden, and most of the ones I do, I do that to. I do not do it to uh, Pensamin digitalis, which is in my garden because it's yep. usually bloomed by the time I'm getting around to this. Exactly. But and and I don't know if we described the Chelsea Chop. We did it in a native plant every day, but it's basically oh, I guess you should listen to a native plant every day. Yeah, and we'll yeah. Talk go about back it. and you have to listen to yeah. it. Now, if only I could remember which episode it was. You're going to have to listen to the whole season <laughs> yeah, yeah. to listen to it. So um, 
I know I took Grow Read a Book away from you today, but I kind of brought this Take It or Leave It for you. Oh, so I that know you, you did. could talk yeah. about it. like yeah. this is this is for you. So I I, I take away and I give it. Um, so it's rice holes, and the reason why I ask is we've made a concerted effort to use rice holes uh, in our pots to help suppress weeds in a more mm-hmm. natural way. And Tom had done a video uh, on our social media talking about how we've we've made this transition and why. And there was actually some weird feedback, some negative mm-hmm. feedback about. How rice holes are a bad thing. So yeah. my take it or leave it is rice holes. Yeah, um, for use of weed suppression instead of yes, pesticide yeah. so or, or herbicide use. I am uh, even after doing a little bit more research on this. I'm I'm still on rice holes. I think they're a benefit. And basically, what we do with rice holes at our nursery, and a lot of nurseries have moved to this. Yeah. Not only is it a, a cost saving measure, but um, from a, from a and you're using fewer pesticides, and then um, it actually has some other benefits. To the plant yeah. as well, or herbicides, not uh, herbicides. Yeah. Specific, I did pesticide. the same thing. Yeah, but um, and it actually because it's a lighter surface, it keeps the pot temperature cooler on top because you have dark uh, potting soil is going to attract, uh, or well, the light is going to stick yeah. and then basically yeah. heat that pot up or the root ball up faster. Where the the lighter colored golden rice hulls kind of reflect more sunlight away. And keep the root ball cooler, and so you have you actually, in theory, extend your growing season a little bit because you are the roots are getting too hot and stressed, um, and then it actually conserves water because you have a layer there that's after you irrigate the water percolates into that potting mix, and um, now as the sun hits it, it's not evaporating out, so you don't get that dry top layer like you would on a normal pot. Um, so there's some of the benefits of it. Uh, I'm still fine using it because a lot of the research I said, well, I guess I should say the the questions we received about it, um, I wouldn't even say it was negative feedback per se. It was like just some, say, hey, you might want to look at this, uh, was that rice is used, or there's a lot of pesticide use yes. on rice. And from what I found, the holes are really the thing that has the most... Uh, pesticide residue rice when it grows it has like a husk around it or yeah. this hull around it and then so the inside usually didn't get, really didn't get many pesticides yeah. on it the part you eat it's yeah. the hull the hull around it is getting most of the pesticide um but through the treatment process after the rice is harvested they separate the hull from the the i don't know you call it a kernel the rice know. kernel i don't know but the the rice thing yeah. um the part you eat. Is yes. the, <laughs> the, but uh, once you separate that, it actually goes through a treatment process where it's like um, it's quasi-cooked, I think. It's like boiled in a sense. And I that leaches a lot of the pesticide residue away, if not all of the pesticide residue away. Um, from what I've read through both impartial or uh, university research and um, – and, uh, like their other yeah. promotional materials from the company itself. Um, Cause that's a valid concern. We're, we're using this to reduce the pesticides we're putting on the plants um, because it's su- doing weed suppression. So we don't have to go out there and spray them with an herbicide or, or use a, uh, a granular herbicide to uh, in, in theory, we, we aren't quite there yet. We're still doing some of this, 
But um, we just started using these a couple of years ago, and we've had pretty good results so far. So, and then from a business standpoint, it saves us money because we yeah. don't have to spend all this money on expensive chemicals because we're getting a byproduct of some. It's going to get thrown out otherwise. And you and said now the, nurseries the, get to use it. The rice hulls are organic certified. They're yeah, they're Omri yeah. listed. Yeah. So, which means I don't know how the process is to get something Omri listed, but I'm assuming there's some rigorous testing that it goes through. That I would is imagine, saying. Yeah. Um, hey, this is, uh, I know for just to, if you want to join uh, or be uh, like a NOFA member um, and have your farm listed, there's a whole years and years of, of non, no pesticide use before you can actually like become certified organic. So I'm assuming if this is Omri listed. There's some certification process that shows that, uh, that it's, it's very limited, if not, if not no pesticides on so. So you're taking it? Oh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, taking taking it. It. I, I'm, I'm taking it. I'm taking it, too. I've been really impressed with I it so far. I knew that was the answer. Uh, a lot of nurseries are using it. It's, um, I think it's a good thing. It's, it's, it, there, any choice you have to make, there are drawbacks and there are positives, too. Um, this one, I think the the drawbacks are minimal compared to the, the positive. Mm-hmm. The biggest drawback we've seen is it makes a huge mess. You get a big wind and all of a sudden this stuff's all over the place, but... It's aesthetic. Yeah. It's it's still serving its purpose and in, in doing its job. Um, yeah. I agree. So I'm taking it. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Buzz. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. Thank you, RJ Comer, for our Buzz theme music. Make sure you stream or buy RJ's music wherever you consume your music or check out his Americana playlist on Pandora. I think you'll appreciate those. Follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, or at Pinelands Nursery, and also at YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, thank you for the call into the question and comment line. You too can call us at 215 346 6189. I will repeat that 215 346 6189. You can ask a question or leave a comment. And if we pick a uh, if, or I shouldn't say if we pick. We, we, we try to always play uh, all the questions or comments on a future episode of The Buzz. We'll do our best to do that. And uh, hey, thank you for joining the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. A lot of new members. Uh, a lot of spam. Man, I've never – There are – It's like five a day at yeah. this point where Justin Bieber's dead. RIP Justin yeah. Bieber, Simon Cowell's in a, in a coma and all those. I've never seen so many. Fortunately, I think we've managed to keep them all out. But thank yep. you for all the real people that have joined oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Yeah, so you can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet merch uh, like my son was wearing at the, the National nice. Zoo um, at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet. There's a link right at the top that will bring you to some of these, these um, some of our T-shirt designs, iPhone designs, or I, iPhone case designs, uh, aprons. There's all kinds of stuff on there. Um, we do not keep any of the money that that comes through this we get a little a little paypal notification when there's a lump sum in there and then we take it and and we give it to organizations that we feel are doing a really really good job so i'm gonna make i know there's a couple i just showed you a design a couple weeks ago that i haven't released yet so that's gonna go up there pretty soon i'll probably take down some of the less popular ones just so it doesn't crowd it uh that's called skew rationalization (laughs) um that is my job here at the nursery is to i like that (laughs) figure out what is worth carrying what's not um 
And we have – someone did give us feedback just the length of time it was taking yeah, to get some yeah. of these shirts, which mm-hmm. some of this is – it's always been a little on the slower side, especially like over the holidays. Yes. Like I yeah. ordered four shirts and they shipped from four different places at four different times mm-hmm. and it took two to three weeks to get them. I know someone was well over – was it two months, one month? Yeah, month. and it was uh, – something in particular was, was taking a long time. But I don't think it was anything crazy. It was okay. just like one item and – um. And I, I've been running around a little bit, so I can't say I've. I would said I would open or try and help a little bit, but I can't say I've gotten any headway. Okay. So if you haven't received it yet, please let me know. Still, I don't. Um, I think their 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 time to receive it was early April. Okay. So I, I don't yeah, think they received it yet. Hopefully but, they they get it at that point. But yeah, basically with this service, um, and I've been looking at a handful of others too. We don't warehouse any of the t-shirts. Yeah. It's basically, we I put the design on, and there's other printers that go and and take care of it. So when you order, it's custom printed just for you. Yeah. But uh, but every once in a while, it hits a little snag. Most of the stuff we've gotten has taken between like a, a two weeks, two to about. three weeks, I'd yeah. say. Yeah. So. Um, so it's not like Amazon where you're getting it no. in two days because no, this stuff no, is it's, it's not custom, made. Custom <laughs> it's, print it for you. Yeah. So um, the other thing we always ask you to do is please subscribe uh, You can to our podcast um, and leave a five-star review if you can. If you do a little write-up with that review, uh, i give you a little shout-out here on our, our Buzz episode. So, And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcast. Um, so, yeah, with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. Uh, oh, we. Ha- I was supposed to put. Do you a have secret a? Se- in here. I don't have a secret. Um, I can. I. My wife was just telling me a story uh, from the zoo about. I probably should save the shirt one. That would have been a good one here. Yeah. But, uh, but, but my son. He's he's talking a lot. Uh, he hit a certain age, and it's just he didn't shut up. And um, and he, she was just telling me a story. About at the zoo, there's like a big bee themed playground, honeybee themed, okay. uh, but but still bee themed nonetheless. And um, he met another little boy who was a little older than he was, and they were talking. And, and she said, "Oh, he's very good at introducing himself. Yeah. He like reaches out for handshakes. Oh, and nice. Stuff. So he's like, hi, my name's my name's Graham Kinesic. What's your name?' And like she sticks out his hand to shake, and then the kid's like, "Oh, my name's Jack." And Graham looks at him and says. What's your real name? This <laughs> is like a little like three year old conversation, and the boy's like, "My real name is Jack." <laughs> and then my wife says, "He looked up at her and then looked back at him like questioningly and said, okay." <laughs> and uh, and then they started. Uh, Jack, Jack said. My name's Jack, and this is my mommy. And, and Graham says, "That's my mama right here. That's my mama." <laughs> then they started running. He tagged them. Graham tagged okay. them and started running circles around his mom and saying. Uh, and then they were going back and forth saying, "I'm chasing you." No, I'm chasing you. <laughs> Just running circles around. So wow. it's a, a really fun age. That's uh, a good age. But yeah, that was a. I couldn't stop laughing when I went home for lunch and uh, and heard that story. So. What's no, I your shared it with you. real name? <laughs> What's your real name? <laughs> I'll find a way to use that okay. at some point. <laughs> All right, I guess. <laughs> well, All right. Well, that's it. Thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone. Uh, we have a guest on the next episode, so make sure you tune in. And until then, keep it native.
Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.